Welcome to Acquiring Minds, a podcast about buying businesses. My name is Will Smith. Acquiring an existing business is an awesome opportunity for many entrepreneurs. And on this podcast, I talk to the people who do it. My guest today is Andrew Finn. Andrew has acquired a couple SaaS businesses as well as built and sold his own company. And now he's investing in searchers. I was eager to have Andrew on because having run both a services business and SaaS businesses, he has good insights about the relative merits of those types of businesses. And I actually first found Andrew on Twitter, where he shares those same insights. Well, he didn't disappoint. This was a fun conversation with a guy who's been in the trenches, succeeded, and through it all learned a ton about buying small businesses. Here he is, Andrew Finn. Andrew Finn, thank you for joining me today on Acquiring Minds. Excited to be here, Will. You are not my typical guest. You have done an acquisition, but this isn't just your typical acquisition interview. You've also started your own business. You're also an investor uh, in, in businesses. So we're going to cover a bunch of different topics here, but the, the through line will be acquisition. The, um, the first thing I want to ask you is, You've, I think you've since taken this down, but your Twitter profile up until recently read investing in businesses like investing in businesses like an 1880s businessman. You probably didn't have the word business in there twice. Something <laughs> to that effect. What was that? And, and tell us what that means. Sure. Um, so I, I have kind of a difficult job to describe, um, but it's also a really simple job in a lot of ways. It's trying to, you know, turn capital into more capital and mm -hmm. try to you know, at this point, fortunately, trying to make money with money and try to build, um, you know, build this little fledgling empire. Um, so a lot of the, uh, you know, really great old entrepreneurs I love reading about all these kind of Gilded Age, uh, Gilded Age robber barons. And mm -hmm. I'm certainly not one of them, but I, I just kind of like the way they generally approach the game of business. And it's not, um, uh, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it's just kind of about trying to win this game of business as opposed to, um, especially for me, who tends to be a generalist, uh, as opposed to really diving into one area and being like, I'm going to be the smartest person at this. Like, I'm just, I've chosen to be in the game of business, compete in the game of business, and just try to do my best in the game of business. And I think the kind of 1880s businessman perspective just really dumbs it down to like the profession of businessmen. Like whenever I go through mm -hmm. airports and I'm like, Oh, what's your profession? I really enjoy writing businessmen because <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's what it yeah. is, right? You're I'm in business. Just, what do you I'm do? In I'm in business. I'm a game of business. Yeah. Great. Cool. I love it. Why'd you change it though? Well, I, well, honestly, I think, I think we talked about it. Like you, you were like, Oh, I assume that this means that, uh, you're only, you know, your particular interest in, you know, the types of businesses that would have been around the 1880s, like just plumbing businesses and territorial businesses. And I realized that, uh, that that's not at all true. So uh, uh -huh. it, it, maybe, it maybe wasn't coming across as, as I intended to. Actually, that's a, that's a great point because, yeah, I in, in this time where there's all this interest in, in acquiring non-tech businesses, people are kind of going back to the sweaty businesses, the offline businesses. Many of my guests and me are interested in those businesses. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I interpreted 1880s as like, you're not buying a SaaS. You're buying something that existed 100 years ago, sort of thing. So, good clarification. Okay, well let's let's get into one of your businesses. This is not one that you have acquired. This is one that you started, but recently exited. So there's a there's a story there. Give us the the three or four minutes on Arbor Bridge. Sure. Uh, Arbor Bridge was the first baby. So my, I have a business partner, and uh, he's my 
kind of childhood best friend, this guy, Tim Urban, and he had... Sorry to interrupt, but yes, everyone, that is that is Tim Urban of Wait But Why fame, if you know the blog. Go ahead. Dramatically, dramatically <laughs> more famous than me. Um, <laughs> I am the other guy. Uh, so Tim had, uh, this is like flashback to 2007, um, we're 25, basically Tim had started this little tutoring business uh, kind of to make ends meet when he was living in LA and trying to become a film uh, composer for films. And it was like around that time when I, I quit my job and moved back to the States. So it was, um, I want to, you know, I want to get into business and the <laughs> stars aligned and Tim kind of had this, you know, fledgling business. They said, Hey, look, I think this could be something real. If we partner on it and, uh, we give it a go. So that's what we did. And it was a, uh, you said a tutoring business. Yeah. So we originally, um, it morphed over time. So it was originally a, like an in-person tutoring business and we focused on uh, everything that was not test prep, you know? So we would hire a tutor who would go to a kid's house in Beverly Hills and you know, work with him on his eighth grade math. Um, and then a few years into it, we, you know, we kind of realized that, that was, that was a good fee one. Um, but it was a very, it was kind of an easy to start, hard to finish type of business, which mm -hmm. is most service businesses. Uh, we thought there was an opportunity to build uh, to build something in the online tutoring space, um, and so we kind of started a second brand that was specifically for like SAT, ACT prep, one-on-one, -on -one, online, targeted at the international market because they had a real need, and that that eventually became the entire business. Um, so we, you know, obviously went back to the domestic market, but the business that we ended up exiting was just. An extremely well done um, high end one on one online tutoring company. We we're kind of the first ones to really just build a brand of a business solely around the online component of that and to really build a kind of curriculum that was specifically from first principles to be delivered online. Um, and, and, I and to an international audience, was that a big angle or, or that, that, that was the last over time? The, okay. Yeah, so the wedge is the international because I mean, they just needed to access better higher quality tutors for somebody in New York didn't do that. But now, yeah. you know, America's really gotten the board fit and COVID really jumped that ahead too. Um, so I exited being CEO of a business five years ago and we're actually on our second CEO after me uh, who's staying on at the company after it got sold. So everybody's staying on except for me and Tim. And so you guys sold the business in what, July, two months ago? Yeah, yeah, in June, yep. Okay, and was it, would you consider it a, a successful exit? How do, how do you feel about it, you know, emotionally? Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Uh, I, super, super successful exit. I mean, nothing in... Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you know, we're not talking about like a crazy tech exit, but just like a very, very high quality kind of search fund size exit. Um, huh? I mean, it, it's like an anvil coming off the chest. Uh, it, there is, you know... That business for me was just extremely, just the amount like of just emotional tie up in it. Um, because of the day to day, or because of some other like how many years you'd invested in it, like kind of, kind of. Yeah, I, I mean, it's just so many ego things that like ego. drives you right, you just can't peel away, and not even ego from like a grandiosity standpoint, just kind of a okay, quit, you know, tapped out of the kind of corporate, traditional, high-performing, you know, American path at 25. This was the thing we planted our flag in. 
and just the perpetual feeling of, oh, you know, if this goes to shit, like I'm going to just wasted, you know, 10 years and this whole, this whole journey is going to be like a failure. I'm like, I'm going to be 40. I'm not going to have money. Like just all those yeah. deep, dark crawlies. Um, and there's <laughs> just like an operate. I mean, it's operationally brutal business because it's, um, you know, it's services and it's all people and it's education, but the, yeah, most of it was just like the huge fear of, you know, just failure around it. Interesting. Kind of it by selling it. Yeah, but it sounds like it was a good exit. So there must have been some value to what you created and holding on to it. Like it must have been a, a solid business if somebody wanted to pay a lot of money for it. Yeah. It, it you know, is, in other words, in other words, why did you need the acquisition to feel validated? Um, because service businesses are really hard and they're scary. Like you, you know, because you built it from, you know that there was a day when nobody cared about you and exist, you know, the business didn't exist. And even though you've built up demand in a real business, you know that cosmically the world will wake up tomorrow and say, don't need you, don't care. See you later. And it could go to zero. It's not going to happen, but you just know that that's possible. Um, you know, that, and then the fact that there's some seasonality elements of it and, you know, which are always just unsteady and particularly with this business is like, they've been so, they've been screwing around the service test so much the last five, six years, every year is something different. Now it's a political issue. Uh, it's just very difficult to get comfortable with, even as a, you know, an absentee owner, uh, yeah. just that it would be fine and steady and, and there forever. Um, but a lot, a huge part of that too, is just the like neurotic pathways that got built up over the course of building business. Just like, even though, you know, the, Megan was the CEO when we left, it was amazing. And the business was like in really great shape and finally, you know, finally got to the point where it was profitable and it's great, but like, I can't forget about, you know, all, you know, we kind of ran it for for the, the last couple of years of business was perpetually like, I don't know, like two months of cash in a bank. Yeah. You know, like that, that does real, uh, you know, that causes real heartburn. Um, and it's just kind of hard to, you know, it's hard to forget that. Well, this is, this is something that I, I want to touch on from your, I mean, this is clearly informed how you now think about service businesses, which we're going to get into, but you've, you've tasted, I mean, not only services business, but SaaS as well, because you guys acquired something called College Planner Pro um, as a as a strategic move as part of Arbor Bridge, and so you got to see the magic of SaaS at the same time. So anyway, why don't you why don't you tell the story of College Planner Pro? Uh, yeah, and then I'll follow up with a, another question about how that compares to a services business. Sure. Yeah. So in it took us a long time the test prep company to really get settled in on on kind of our main growth customer acquisition channel. And for us in that business, it was relationships with private independent college consultants. So the people who, the family will hire outside of the school to help them kind of navigate the college admissions process. They were great partners for us because, you know, we had the same goals, which is get the kids higher school risen, get them, um, give them more options where they want to go. And once we kind of honed in, we're like, this is actually the channel that works. And next question is like, okay, so given that, well, how do you 
how do you build some kind of mode around that? How do you differentiate yourselves long-term? Because any, you know, any test prep company can go to a counselor and say, hey, we do, te- we do test prep. So the, the idea we had was like, oh, well, what if we own the software that they all use to run their business? Mm-hmm. Um, sure. It happened to be this little duopoly market. And um, there was, you know, College Planner Pro was the newer entrant who was growing a lot faster. And I reached out to the guy and it just happened to be great timing where he... There's a very kind of like, no, I don't think it's unique to SaaS, but there's, there's a moment with SaaS businesses where, um, you know, this guy was grinding away for five or six years and probably making nothing for four of them and then turns a corner and all of a sudden it's like, okay, I think I have a business. And then one more year goes by, it's like, oh, shit. Okay, great. I have a business. This is really exciting. But the downside is now all I'm doing is customer service. And, and I'm just mm-hmm. trying to keep it because, you know, it's a solo, it was a one guy SaaS business. You're just trying to keep your head above water. And then you realize our options are um, I need to hire people to do to do these other functions, um, which means I'm going to go to making no money again. And I have to deal with hiring and I have to deal with managing now. And it becomes an entirely different job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he really wanted to continue working on the software. And it was great because his wife was a counselor and he really cared about the product and really cared about the business. So mm-hmm. We acquired it from him and, uh, you know, we kind of just packaged him. Initially, there was um, kind of really great jack-of-all-trades type employee we had at Arbor Bridge. And we kind of made him the general manager to work with Travis. So Travis could go back to doing programming and he could do all the other stuff. And over time, that, you know, that business has really just continued to do great. It's, you know, at least three times bigger than it was when we bought it. And now it has, like, 80% 80% of that probably addressed market. And there's- So you, you leapfrogged the other, the other, or maybe you were yeah, neck and neck yeah, with them, we, but you, you've dominated the market. They were now. like, even when we bought it and now they're, they kind of got sold for scraps, I think last year. And yeah, it was, it's, it's mostly just us. Um, and did and College like, Planner like Pro- six or seven employee business now. And the CEO is this other woman who kind of grew up in the Arbor Bridge system. She's amazing. Um, so- and is it part of Arbor Bridge? Well, it was part of the same company, but now it's not because Arbor Bridge is gone. So now it's just standalone. But they're they're separate legal entities, and separate, they each had their own CEO. And did college? So your original st- strategy for acquiring College Planner Pro, which was not for the SaaS business itself, but for for the the lead gen, basically, did that? Did that? Well, yeah. That, honestly, we. <laughs> funny because five years into that and we still have barely because we're so um so sensitive to just being a good partner for the customer base that we hardly have even pushed on that um and it just turned out to be kind of a really good business on its own and we didn't want to i would say that the like that was the initial thesis for it once we saw it we got in there we kind of realized that was more like the margin that was more like kind of a margin of safety element. We're like, okay, if that works out, that's great. And if it doesn't, that's fine. It's still a great, a great business. Um, so, you know, hopefully with, I think it'll be easier now that our ridge is owned by somebody else to try to actually figure out that partnership. Um, Cause we really just didn't want to piss people off by <laughs> kind of saying like, Hey, guess what? Tesco company now owns a software company that you guys all use. And mm-hmm. um and now we're going to force that down your throat. So we're always 
trying to be really, you know, get in there and be very hands-off. Um, so it, that still kind of remains to be seen. Oh, interesting. Okay. So yeah. College Planner Pro just ended up being a good acquisition on in its own right, not yeah. because of this, this chess move of yours. Yeah, and, and, and it will, it will eventually. It's just the thing about the test prep industry is it's like, it's not a latest and greatest industry. It's a steady and reliable industry. So mm -hmm. it, the primary thing is always a long-term brand building, just like, Hey, you're going to see your brand here adding value every day and just becoming more and more trustworthy over time. Like Princeton Review still exists somehow as a business and they haven't just because, you know, it was like a great brand in the nineties. Yeah. Um, it, it, once, once brands get there, it takes a, you know, takes a long time for them to go away. So it's the, the magic of the Lindy effect, man. Yeah. Do you, you know, the Lindy effect. I remind me. It's the one where it's a, um, the longer is the, the likely, uh, shelf life of a business going, looking forward as is, is as long as it's lived to date. So if it's a 20 year, yeah. year old business and it start, even if it starts to decline, it's likely to stick around for another 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's not like scientific that's based on, I can't remember the story of the Lindy effect, but it's, it's, it's based on like some marketing observation or something. So I'm curious about like, is there anything to extrapolate from your experience acquiring a neat, uh, like a practice management software for a particular niche? Because I see in the SaaS world, I see a lot of entrepreneurs trying to create those and you acquired one and it turned out to be a great business. I was just looking at like a deal in the trucker, the trucker space. And there's, there, there are all these practice man, these, these, um, small SaaS companies that help you run your trucking business is it. Yeah. Any thoughts there? I have a million thoughts. Um, one is you want a small tank. Like you, you do not want venture back competitors is I think really, really critical because you, they're playing a different game and you'll lose. And even if you don't lose, you know, you might bleed out during it. And like, we, like in that space, we had a, yeah, you just don't, you want a small tank. Small tan venture back competitors um, is number one. Two, you want the problems you're solving to be really not generalizable. Like you want them to just be like weird problems specific to that person and there's in that industry. Uh, and kind of the weirder, the deeper, the better, because then you could just be the only one in the world who's waking up every day trying to solve those problems. Yeah. And customers will see value in that. Um, software is hard and always harder and more expensive, more difficult than we think. And it remains that way. Um, so that is like a, a, you know, and software developers are hard to find and they're expensive. And, uh, you know, especially when you acquire somebody else's, you know, software stack, like that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make it easier. Uh, I, I mean, recurring revenue businesses are just way, way, better than service businesses, objectively. Um, you know, the customer's problem this month is probably the same as customer's problem last month, last month and six months before that. And you've built a robot to solve that problem and the robot will continue to solve that problem. And, you know, there'll be new things that they want, but fundamentally that original problem, you're, you're still solving. Um, so so you like them? Yeah, yeah, I like them. I mean, I, the... I mean, the way I always thought, the way I always thought about it was, 
this is a little bit different now than it was five years ago, but you know, when we started getting into it, I was like, wait, so you're like, you're telling me that this, you know, whatever, the janitorial, the janitorial business sells for three X and a software business sells for five X or yeah, five X. And I always thought that was insane because I was like, this thing is a bond that grows um, with all sorts of like amazing downside protection. And, but it's trading for like distressed, you know, distressed asset prices. It just seemed like such a massive price dissipation. Um, and you can get so much more, I just think you get so, like talk about like the, like, uh, like the Lindy effect. I think software businesses have the same thing where, yeah, you know, especially if you borrow to buy a business, you're always trying to figure out like what's your oh shit scenario. And for me, it's always like, okay, what if I we just are terrible and I did, we just stop supporting you. We don't build anything new. We don't answer customer service tickets. Like whatever the product is right now is all anyone will ever get forever. How much will you get? And, and I mean, for most of them, you still have, you know, if it's a good product in each market, five years later, you still have your customers. Yeah. Yeah. Just because like, yeah, they don't want change. It's still doing its job. And like, to me, that, that feels very, very comfortable as a, you know, financial buyer for these things. So when you said the 5X SaaS trading at 5X versus a janitorial company trading at 3X, what you're saying is in fact, 5X, even though it's more than 3X, you still think it's underpriced. You think SaaS companies have such a big margin of safety that they, six, seven, eight X is, they'd be worth it. Is that, did I, or did I misunderstand your point? Look, look, if you found a, I mean, so like in, in the lower middle market part, like this lower part of the market, so much is a function of just finance and, and debt. But like, if you were, say you're someone with a hundred million dollars and you're like, I need to put a million dollars to work. And someone's like, Hey, here's this business that makes, you know, a million dollars a year and it, but it's been growing and it keeps growing. And you like understand the market, you see the path to growth. You're like, all right, so this thing will, will actually make a million dollars a year that you can return to the investor. And that's going to grow up to, you know, it's going to add 20% a year or 15% a year. Like you would definitely pay, you would happily pay $10 million for that business. Like that's, there are businesses in public markets that look like that and trade for way more. I mean, everyone just gets spooked because, you, have, you know, they're small businesses and, doing the deals is a pain and transaction costs and all that. But like, functionally, it's a great, I mean, they're great. They spit off cash and they grow. And, and I think uh, at least my experience with uh, the current revenue businesses that, that we own is that it, they tend to have like some kind of like intrinsic growth rate. And this is, you know, a, a business where had, like nothing's really been invested in marketing and sales, right? It's just kind of like all organic word of mouth growth and expansion. And that intrinsic growth rate will continue if you don't screw it up. And it's, so yeah. it's like you don't even necessarily have to invest tons in marketing and sales. You can just be product focused and let the you know let time continue to occur. Andrew, I wonder if you got lucky in in acquiring a business that had it was a solid it was a solid piece of software, and so there was word of mouth effects because certainly there are, is bad software that doesn't just grow naturally. Like not all SaaS just grow 10 or 15% a year. In fact, you know, if you work in the SaaS space, everyone is just com completely fixated on churn because you know, you 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 will lose your customers and and you also reach a ceiling, although this is for much larger SaaS companies. You reach a ceiling where your customer base is so large that you to 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 
uh, overcome your monthly churn means adding a ton of new customers. Again, that's like a problem for a bigger company. But still, yeah. like going back to your other point, like I'm not sure they all just grow magically. Some do, but probably yeah. not. There's a lot of crappy software products out there, man. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a low low numbers, uh, low sample sizes give a strong probability that there's a lot of luck involved. Um, <laughs> but I do think certain market dynamics just lend themselves. Uh, like, like right, so the product has to have enough complexity to it, right? So if you're making some product that doesn't have a lot of complexity and then, you know, somebody else could build a new one in three months. Right. And you have to consider how difficult it is to sell the customers, how critical it is to their business. Like, is it right. intertwined? I, I think that you could still get to this comfort level. Like, I bet for every one of those, one of those things you're describing, if we actually talked about it, we could, we could point out like, oh, this is why this wouldn't hold up. Here. Um, yeah. Yeah. But maybe a definition needs to get a little bit tighter. But I think, yeah, I think it's just about understanding the, the customers and the value it provides. Well, so now that you're flush from your from your big exit, are you going to go buying go out buying SaaS companies? No, no, I don't think so. I mean, really? Right now, <laughs> well, right, right now, now you're going to take a, you're going to take a nap. Yeah, I'm relaxed a little bit. We're having our first kid. Um, oh, nice. Which is super exciting. Yeah. And nice. the, you know, so we had the, we had, in our little whole co, we had three operating companies and all three of the CEOs kind of grew up um, in the Arbor Bridge system. And now one of them, so now we kind of have two of them, but it's, um, uh, I, I can't say, I mean, unless one of them kind of like fit in with one of those portfolio companies, then it would be tempting uh i'm also it would be so hard if something amazing came along and i saw it i it's hard you know the uh the businessman to me would get very excited probably try to figure out how to do something because i uh i like discipline um okay uh, right now it's I, i'm more looking for uh kind of independent sponsors and self-funded people who are targeting deals in you know call it the like half million to million and a half dollar EBITDA range, or even like a little bit smaller where they're kind of looking for, um, they need some, some equity as part of their, um, as part of their cap structure. And they want people who understand what they're trying to do and understand the space and have comfort with some of the, some of the grind. Cause in, you know, especially when you go sub million or half million, there's just, there's always problems and there's always things that are ugly. Um, and they're never as ugly as you think, but they're, they can be kind of scared of people. Well, that's a perfect segue. One of the, I think actually, yeah, the, the very first tweet that I saw from you that really got my attention was you, you said something about how, um, you know, many 500K to million dollar EBITDA companies, or maybe whatever, five, 500,000 EBITDA companies are, you know, pretty close, just like a few tweaks away from being 750 or million dollar EBITDA companies. If I'm butchering this, you'll correct me. Um, and it sounds like that's actually the very type of entrepreneur you're, you're looking to invest to go out and do that. So expand on, on all of that in that tweet. Sure, sure. Um, so if it's a small business that's being put up for sale and it's around that size, it's not likely to be a high growth business. So it's probably been around for, seven years and you know maybe more and it hasn't 
you know, it hasn't grown like crazy. Uh, so you can kind of assume that the, you know, the entrepreneur who started it is either like bored and doing something else or they're limited um, in some way. So, because, I mean, it's just, it, it would get bigger if, if they weren't. Um, and what's most likely is that, especially for like really older businesses, it, and you kind of see this a lot where it's like, they get to a point where it is a great situation for the owner, like you're making half a million bucks a year. And what it would take to go from half a million to one and a half is they got to really care about sales or, you know, they really got to invest in some marketing dollars. And they're like, I, I got a great life. How about I just yeah. now work 10 hours a week? Yep. And that's awesome. Um, but there's no way that that business doesn't have just tons and tons of things that could be easily improved. You know, yep. it, it, might, it might be a sort of situation where it's like, oh, this, this person could hire two, like there's tons of like low hanging fruit if they just hire two new salespeople, but they just don't want to deal with, you know, the fact that you're going to spend 150 grand or 200 grand on these two people and you don't really know what you're going to get out of it and like, ah, whatever, you know, like that happens. And having been on the side of, of, you know, owning a company for 13 years, like you just get ground down. And at yeah. some point there's like, you're like, I tried that once. I don't want to do that. I just, yeah. I don't want that headache. I don't want that heartache. Uh, things are going fine. And I just think they just end up with tons of, you know, just tons of opportunities for new blood to either come in and fix up ops or fix up marketing and service. You know, it's funny. I, 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 I hear that and then I hear counterpoints to that. And, and then I hear counterpoints to the counterpoints, but like one of the, just the counterpoints that you often hear to what you just said is that, you know, if this business, if it's, if there's such low hanging fruit in this business, that's now for sale, why didn't the owner do it? Right. It's like, you know, if it's so easy, why didn't, why isn't the current owner doing it? And you basically just gave the answer that they're tired. They don't feel like it. They're comfortable enough. They're approaching retirement. I mean, there are very legitimate answers. Yeah. Like in this, I think that's, what's really difficult is that like in this part of the market, just screwy things happen that don't seem sensible to someone who is like, man, all I want in the world is own a business. When I own a business, I'm going to own it so hard and I'm going to care so much about it. It's all I'm going to do. And you just end up with kooky situations. Um, you know, like the, the second uh, company we bought a couple of years ago, Apartment Guardian, it was, it was a really great business. And we were kind of trying to figure out why the guy wanted to sell it. T but, tell us what Apartment Guardian is. Yeah, sorry. It's, uh, it's a security device company. So we make basically a life alert um, device. It's a key fob. It has a button on it and it contacts emergency services. And the end market is for uh, mobile workers, people who work at multifamily apartment complexes. So think about like the leasing agent who's having to show apartments to, um, you know, random strangers and isn't, you know, going to be keep holding her phone out and dialing 911 if they end up being creepy. It's just something she can keep in her, her keychain or the maintenance guy who's going in and uh, change a light bulb or goes in a ladder might fall off or any situation where you have, um, you kind of have to do active shooter risk management. So you mm -hmm. want the employees on site to just have a really reliable way to call the police. It's a really basic, basic business. I call it cheap and cheerful. Um, <laughs> but 
the, you know, so the guy who started it, um, he ended up, he had started another company that was absolutely killing it. So he hadn't really been working on it for a couple of years and he had some partners and his like, his basically his wife and his sister-in-law and his sister were all working at the business. And it, you know, we just, it, again, it took a little while to get our heads around, but it was just like, he was like, yeah, I just, I don't want to deal with this anymore. And I want to, you know, I want to build a house and I got this whole other thing that's, that's going to be a huge win for me. And, uh, I just, I don't want to stress about it. And that, that just happens. Um, and each, I mean, cause you're right. So I mean, probably the majority of the cases we're talking about, we're like, Oh, this can't, the, the owner would have gotten better, made it better if he could have, or she could have, but there, there's, you just kind of have to be open to the fact that it's, it's different. You know, it's not, they're not thinking about it the same way that you are. That's really, it's hard to correct that. Yeah. Um, they, I mean, many of my guests like have proven that they've acquired a business from a, a retiring owner and they go in there and they, and they pull some levers and I don't mean to make it sound easy. Um, Cause in many cases it's been very hard, at least for the transition period, but they pull a few levers and, um, and dramatic things happen in pretty short order. So it is, it is a real phenomenon. Like we will be those people with, Arbor Ridge, I'm sure, because like the new, like, because we haven't been running the business for five years. And that's just, it's, it, you feel what it's like to be on the other side of it. And I know that somebody else is going to take it over and be like, oh, yeah, like we hired five salespeople. It wasn't that hard. And all of a sudden, yeah. this is growing, you know, growing like crazy. Just like, oh, how are you, man? Yeah. <laughs> well, we're going to do it. That, that actually raises a, a question. So, uh, about services, businesses, and whether or not you're investing energy and in, in growing a business, you install you 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 installed somebody somebody else was running Arbor Bridge. You guys were sort of absentee or at least remote yeah. for the last five years, right? Okay. So first of all, um, just talk to me about that because there's part part of the the uh, dream of acquiring a company, even a service like a messy services business, is that you, the entrepreneur, the acquisition entrepreneur, you get in there and you give it a few hard years to do all the things, right? Improve yeah. it, take it to the next level. But but you probably, the vision isn't probably to do that for 30 years. It's to do it for a while and then go out and find your operator, your CEO and put them in under you. And then you kind of step out and either do it again or whatever. Um, so uh, answer that, but then also just, um, but an, but answer it also in, in light of the point you just made. Can, can, um, can a, why was Arbor Bridge not doing all those things if you had a CEO in there? Um. Okay, well, I'll attack the first one. Uh, so, what you're kind of talking about is, yeah, we're all trying to make the jump. I call for making a jump from labor to capital, from where you're selling your yeah. time to where you're making money in your sleep. And I think that planning process has to start really early. And you need to be building your company to exit one way or another. Personally, exiting kind of ends up being the same as selling to somebody because you just have to build something that can exist without you. And who wants to buy a company that's completely dependent on the owner? Nobody. You know, you want to buy something that feels like an asset, not that feels like a pile of goop. Um, so starting early is really important. And, you know, so we had, I kind of pegged uh, Kate, that's her name, you know, in, I don't know, 2012. And so like, I, I'm pretty sure, I mean, like, you're definitely smarter than I am. And like, I think, I think you could run this business one day and probably do a really fantastic job at it. But, it was, you know, it was like a three or four year period of, Metric her into it. Um, and then probably, you know, a year or two afterwards. And I, I mean, obviously finding the talent is the most important thing. 
because uh, you can't, you know, you can't teach that. But after that, it's just really being willing to let, you know, let somebody else take actually take responsibility for things and make mistakes and, um, you know, really great, really great way to kind of move the process along is taking long vacations. Yeah. And kind of say, Hey, I'm going away for a month. Nobody call me. Kate's in charge. Um, cause we, cause the, like the, the psychological part with the other employees is, you know, probably the second most important thing in the talent is they have to actually regard the next person in line as being kind of like, quote, quote like worthy of the job and that yeah. they want to stay along and they feel like the company's still moving along. So, uh, it's a lot of work to kind of, promote, you know, promote the next person coming up and really just giving them responsibility. But you also kind of like let them, at least for me, uh, you just not, I don't know, not handling and a lot of just kind of like throwing off the deep end and hoping that they swim and then regroup and discussing what was that experience like and uh, and then kind of like mapping out the skill set of the CEO and all the things that need to add and just kind of continuously adding to it over the years. Um, and do, I mean, but the, and so this as a model for say some somebody that you're investing in, somebody who's going out and buying a um, a sweaty business, a services business, this model of of they go in and fix it or improve it or take it to the next level and then find their their heir. Uh, this is a model you believe in. It's just hard and takes time. Yeah, and you, I mean, price helps with that in a way, right? Because you're, you know, if you're not paying that much coming in, then you, it gives you a little bit of wiggle room when you, when you leave. And that like, it doesn't, it put this way, like if you, if you grow the business from a million dollars, you've been up to $2 million if you've done like three or four years that you're there, you're good. Like you, you've won the game and you don't have to find somebody who's now going to take it to five. If you do, that's amazing. But really what you want at that point is someone who could just hold the line at two. Um, so I, yeah, I, I believe it. I think, it's, I, you know, test prep's a little bit easier probably because you have all these really, really smart people who end up in it. And just because they, their career took a couple of odd turns and they end up in test prep and like, holy crap, he's smart. And actually it's the, so Kate, who's the original Harvard CEO is now the apartment government CEO. So she's just, Slid, slid sideways. Um, <laughs> yeah, what was the second question you asked? Uh, I think we I, we touched on it. Like, um, well, can, can that CEO bring bring the same like vigor uh, that that you as the as the as the eager new owner who's just acquired the business can? No, and I guess the question is, you hope, but it's probably even rare. Yeah, I, I think you have to be realistic about what. I think that person is like ideally is the operator. So like the way it went for our business is we had this like big ramp growth period where, you know, you're ramping on the revenue sales side, but then also building infrastructure. So infrastructure for test prep is like custom software to run the business because that ultimately is what's going to drive profitability because like you need less people on the kind of uh, corporate level to be able to do more and do it better. And so you need software for them to do that. And then, and then curriculum building, you know, so that your tutors actually do a better job and it takes them less effort. And all it takes like a, that takes a crap load of money over time. And, and like arriving at a business model. So I think by the time I left, we were kind of like, okay, we, we know what we're doing. Like the existential, 
we resolve the existential issues of the business where it's like, we know what the business is. We know how we acquire customers. Now we need to go and deliver on that. And we need to continue on these infrastructure projects. And then those kind of get wound up and that's when the business can really get profitable. And then maybe it's like a different person or it's a different set of skills where we're like, all right, now we're really trying to build, you know, a, a long-term, uh, I don't know, like kind of, kind of a long-term organization culture and you're doing that the whole time but it's a little bit it's just a little bit different people who are like build 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 versus hey like how do we make this super sustainable and profitable mm-hmm. um so that's actually something that's really helpful for having new ceos is you know i was terrible about being profitable like every single last dollar i wanted to invest in growth and i would just like run at max cortisol all the time and <laughs> stepping away from it then you can say to someone hey we are going to be profitable this is kind of, and, and you know they say okay great that's part of my job my job is yeah. to have this level of profitability and like that was a I could never do that but somebody else could yeah yeah well you know your Arbor Bridge story it it, it kind of sounds like a te- like a um a real uh, what's the word I'm looking for the perfect example of why acquisition entrepreneurship makes sense because you guys invested long, hard years in just figuring it out. And now it's figured out. You figured it out uh, and and you took your 30s to do so. And your acquirer is coming into this this thing that 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 works and they're and they're off to the races much more quickly. And I, I'm just restating like the, the whole kind of the whole philosophy behind acquisition entrepreneurship. But um hearing, you know, kind of the pain that you went through building Arbor Bridge, like this is exactly like anybody building a services business probably goes through similar pain over a long amount of time. And so that's why you just want to shortcut all of that, skip ahead yeah. and acquire the services business. It's, it's a I mean, way it sounds way so smug, but it's, uh, but it, it no. just, it just, it's, it screams, uh, you know, smarter move. Yeah. Well, I mean, once we, after we kind of did our first our first deal, the first time I was like, this is so much easier than building. Like building is so hard and it's such a grind. And like, while we were doing that, we'd also tried like two other kind of startups that failed. It's just hard. It is really hard going from zero to one. And yeah, if you could find something that's already going and you're just make it better. And like, I mean, realistically, you know, if you do ETA, then, you know, you're kind of talking four or five years to pay off. Mm-hmm. And it's a pretty awesome payoff when you get there because, you know, if you, you know, you own like a real business that's making real money and it's debt-free, it's debt-free. Whereas, you know, you start something from scratch, it might fail and it probably takes 10 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, the risk is you have to, I guess, which is, I don't know why sometimes I get a little frustrated when people are, uh, get, you know, too spooked by the BSBD stuff. Because I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, you're trying to get a free company. It's, it's going to be risky. You know, it's, it's, it's like a great move. People, people get spooked about like the personal guarantee and just having the loan hanging over your head. And your point is, yeah, well, but it's also an amazing financial deal. So <laughs> yeah, like you're basically trying to get a free company. Like, right. you're, you know, you're not, right. you know, and you're like getting, you know, you most of the time, like getting paid decent money to do it. Yeah. Like it's not, um, so you know, Andrew, on that, on that point, like, it sounds like, um, we're, we're bumping up on time, but, um, you've done SAS, you've done services, you've got scars from each. I think you like SAS more fair. 
Very fair. Yeah. Okay. But you're actually investing. I'm not sure you said this, but I get the impression you're investing in, I guess you're investing in searchers. So searchers might be acquiring in SaaS or they might be acquiring in services, but it sounds like you believe in this SBA services acquisition thesis. You just don't want to be the one getting your hands dirty. Yeah. I think a good deal is a good deal. And I think, um, the most important thing, I just kind of wrote something about this most important thing for people who are in the early part of this journey is just like get in the game, own something. And you can only, you can always own a better thing later, but if the thing you feel, you know, equipped to take on at this point is, you know, a lawn care business, then do that. And you'll probably do, probably do great with it. And then in five years, you'll maybe want to do something bigger or something that's a fundamentally, you know, better business. That's, I think it's a great way to start. And, you know, price matters and price, you know, ultimately as an investor, just kind of looking for good deals. I think what's nice about the software or I'll say there's a, there's a group of businesses that are software like, you know, they feel like software, Um, you know, so maybe they're, I don't know, there's kind of like certain products that are, they're still high margin. They're still, um, uh, super scalable and it's not software. I mean, something like a, you know, like a newsletter is an example of that. Yeah. It's like you yeah. make it once. Uh, and the nice thing about those is I think you have the, the chances of really high growth and something really great happening. And it's nice to have that super high upside from the investor point of view. And I'm, I'm just, I, I'm pretty, pretty damn risk tolerant. So I don't, you know, I like things with a lot of leverage and I like things that can grow and that's just going to happen to be my, um, you know, my tolerance a little bit more than the smaller service things, but like, I'll know, ask you after your, after yeah. your child is born, if, if that, uh, <laughs> if that risk tolerance has shifted at all in next yeah. year. Well, we moved to North Carolina. So that's a, it's a D it's a de-risking move. Oh, were you in LA this whole time? No, we were in LA and we were in New York, uh, but we ah. moved out to North Carolina last year. Yeah. So last question, um, bit of a tangent. So capital camp you were at, right? Yes. So, um, for people who don't know, that's like kind of a, um, private equity, but kind of at the lower middle market side of things, Brent B. Shore runs it. And there are a lot of people who are the big names on Twitter and SMB Twitter showed up there. People were talking about it. So uh, how was it? Uh, it was really fun. So and, and there's, it's interesting because the other person who organizes it is Patrick O'Shaughnessy. And right, sorry, for the best of the best to yeah. end up with, you know, like the guys who run, you know, University of St. Louis, uh, sorry, Watch U's and Downwind were there. And there's some, you know, you kind of end up with more, you know, some institutional uh, public market investing types too. So it, it is a bit of a range. Uh, yeah. The way I kind of describe it is it's the one conference I can go to where I can explain what I do when people are actually interested and will pay attention. You can't, you can't just get away with being like, I'm in business. No. Yeah. <laughs> right. Which is my you know, default. Like, I hate, I hate that question. I'll ask them about a million questions before uh, in just in hopes that they won't ask me, but there <laughs> people will ask and, and listen. Uh, and it's just super good vibes. I think that's the thing I like about the most is it's just, uh, you know, the conferences where you can kind of walk up to any group of people and it's, it's not like, Oh, who are you? And what can I get out of you? It's just like on a very human level. Hey, I want to learn about you. So make you be cool. So it seemed more, I don't know, more like frenzy than working. And is that it's invitation only is, or am I wrong? It, it is. Yeah. And I don't, 
you know, I don't think, I don't know. I don't think I was like the design is to be exclusive or anything. Just, you know, probably capacity constraints and think Columbia, sure. yeah. Columbia, Missouri. Um, yep. But it was really cool. It's, you know, it's uh, probably a bit, a bit curated. And so that does help with the quality of the conversations. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It helps. And it's just, I think the main thing is that like, it's very collaborative and not extractive. Like, I don't know if you've been, I served at some point, you've been to some kind of like venture tech conference, but they're like the third circle of hell. <laughs> just every, you walk up to someone, look at the name tag, someone looks over your shoulder, just, you know, it's just gross. It just feels like a meat market. Cool. Not cool. Capital Camp sounds cool. Yeah, Capital Camp is cool. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Andrew, uh, we're at time, but this was this was awesome. Um, I'm eager to see what what you end up doing after you've taken a breather and had a kid and settled into North Carolina, because um, you know you're not Vanderbilt yet, man. So uh, you, you, <laughs> you still gotta you still gotta do put that money to work and do some interesting yeah. things with it, which I which, which uh, I encourage people to follow your Twitter um, to see how you think about this stuff. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, Finn's Cave. F I N N S C A V E. Is, and is that the best place to get a hold of you and follow you? And Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, uh, pretty easy. Like Andrew at G64Ventures.com. Um, always interested in meeting, you know, independent sponsors and uh, people who are looking to put together deals and, you know, little little part of the market. So you are, you are looking for a deal flow. So people yeah. who've got something should reach out. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, Andrew. Until next time. Thank you for the time. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Well.